back to Weird Comics History, where Chris and I like to bring you some weird comics history every single week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. Uh, we are through WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast, so if you're subscribed to them, we should show up, and that's where you can find us if you are looking for some comics history. Uh, we're available on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and you can subscribe, and you can also play it through the website, which is, you guessed it, weirdsciencedccomics.com. Mm-hmm. So we have been talking now, this is our fourth week, talking about the comics code. And where do we? Where are we finally now? Well, we're over the hump. Actually talking <laughs> about the, the comics hump. code, finally. Yes. After all this buildup, you know, we took you... Uh, a long way to, we took a the long way to get here. You know, first we talked about uh, the way comics were pre-war and uh, pre-World War II and during World War II, and how they were uh, by and large seen as uh, jingoistic, patriotic books for kids and soldiers to rally around. Then post-World War II, sort of the nature of America changed, and uh, comics became more cynical and crime and horror oriented to f- fit this new adult young adult uh, population. Um, this caught the attention of Dr. Frederick Wortham, who then wrote a book, Seduction of the Innocent, which was about how comics were uh, causing juvenile delinquency or were leading to... Lending to it. Yeah, yeah uh, increased juvenile delinquency. And that led to the uh, Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency holding hearings under Senator Estes Kefauver, Kefauver, sorry. Uh, One in, of you. In 1954, where they basically had a lot of guys from the comics industry, actually mostly from the uh, retail distribution end, distribution yeah. end of it, because I, I think the most of the publishers, except for Bill Gaines of EC Comics, uh, didn't want to show up. They, um, they saw it as the trap that it was. Yeah, I think Bill Gaines <laughs> was perhaps didn't see what they saw and, and knew at this time. Uh, and this essentially led directly to the creation of the Comics Code Authority, which we're going to be calling... Throughout this podcast, we're probably going to be calling the CCA or the Code. Or the Code, yeah. We're talking about the same organization, uh, you know, a collection of publishers that agreed to self-censor. So it was actually Bill Gaines, believe it or not, who wanted to start the CCA. Uh, He suggests that the comics publishers convene and self-regulate in order to avoid federal censorship. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. this is not an uncommon tactic as we'll talk about later by a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of especially those that sell entertainment uh but this was this is what they think and and you probably thought that the other publishers were of the same mind that he was that they would want to minimize the the self-censorship and you know continue making the comic books that they wanted to yeah if they do it under their rules it would be a lot less harsh than if the feds came in that was the theory unfortunately uh he was wrong (laughs) at the very first meeting of the cca Gaines perceived that the code was designed to attack ec comics and probably him by extension because he you know he took it all very personally he was really invested in the company at this time and he was Uh, the face of it and and he definitely was the face uh of ec comics especially after having uh, testified at the, the Kefauver hearings. He was a national personality now. So he stormed out from the meeting and was tried to divest from the whole thing, said we don't need no stinking code. Uh, mm. But he was wrong because distributors were returning bundles of his comics unopened, so he eventually had to join just to get on the newsstands. Uh, this changed his comics radically. Uh, there's, you know, There's that famous picture of 
I believe it's Kefauver sitting in front of a before and after shot of the old witch from yep. Vault of Horror. And in the earlier one, she looks like the old witch, sort of like a hag. And in the second one, she kind of looks like Betty White, right? Yep. Something like that. <laughs> it's just, just a matronly yeah. old woman. Kind of a chubby, a chubby, cute grandma. So, yeah. you know, and this, this, that was indicative of everything happening. But we'll get into more of that later. Sure. Uh, so the original crew that made up the CCA um, was John L. Goldwater, who was president of Archie Comics. He was president of the uh, CCA as well. Uh, and this would have included National Atlas. This would have, that would have been DC and Marvel. Harvey. Uh, too many to really mention. American sure. Comics Group. There was, there were, you got to remember that this is still coming out of the horror comics and crime comics glut. So there are lots of comics publishers, uh, many of which don't even, that don't even publish that many comics. Uh, the first appointed administrator of the CCA was New York Magistrate Charles F. Murphy. Uh, pretty much all, every publisher did join, except for Dell Gold Key, uh, who didn't want to consort with this rabble, with these people that had ties to, you know, uh, sometimes the mafia and were sort of dealt in sordid things. And Disney never joined, and really never even gets mentioned. I'm not sure why, no. maybe, whether yeah. I'm missing something. Actually, I, I, now that I'm really thinking about it, I believe Disney was uh, distributed through Gold Key. That's why we're not hearing about it. I think you're right. But but regardless, they never had to. They were always pretty saccharine, except for the um, rodent and duck nudity. But that's uh, something else. Yeah. And, and you know that one where Mickey Mouse tried to hang himself a few times? Or was that a cartoon? That was a comic strip, actually. <laughs> okay. So that was fine. See, that's fine in the newspaper. It's not in the comics. Yeah, because they, uh, they published a collection of those called Mouse, right? In like the late 80s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah, what it is? Called Art, Mouse Art Spiegelman's Mouse? <laughs> no, no, it was Mouse. Oh, like you're, Mouse. You're, you're talking about a real uh, collection? Yeah, there was a collection. I don't remember. It was a. Was it Kitchen Sink? Or. Uh, you know, there was a, uh, I'm sorry to derail, but yeah, there was an independent publisher in the late 80s who uh, had a collection of those that they put out, and it was just called Mouse. I wonder if it was and Ab only Abbeville one Press. Issue, yeah, only one issue made it to uh, to the uh, stores because uh, I guess uh, Disney got involved and said no. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. more. Yeah, they don't play um, around. Okay, and due to the uh, changes here, uh, we could pretty much say goodbye to uh, the American comics industry. Um our old friend and the replacement for parental supervision, uh, television comes in. Originally, the networks were not networked. Uh, during the 40s, shows were filmed in, a, in New York and often broadcast live there. And then uh, film canisters were shipped to affiliates around the country for rebroadcasting. Uh, AT&T finished nationwide coaxial cabling in 1951. And uh, then, you know, it was on. It was on and popping, folks. TV was, was in. I never would have figured that coaxial cable was so old. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, sales of uh, TV sets. Let's see here. Between 1939 and 1941, 7,000 sets. So, I mean, that's, that's the first insane. year. But to me, that's really more of a, of a laugh because, of course, there's almost nothing to watch at that time either. You know what I mean? The, for, these are these are the, really the early adopters here over these first three yes. years. Yeah, they had, they had a couple hours of broadcasting. A that's day, it, maybe. yeah. Uh, in 19, they were looking at the uh, the Indian head in the uh, in the bars. That's right. That's uh, all they saw all day was the test <laughs> pattern. Uh, in 1951, we were up to 15 million 639,872 sets, and then when we hit 1959, we're up to 67 million 145,000 sets. So that is, I mean, what a jump! You it's know? insane. It's like four times 
uh, what yeah. they were selling nine years prior. They're selling that many sets. It's unbelievable. And this was all makes and models. Uh, it's unbelievable. So uh, this television had taken root, folks, in the 50s. And, of course, you'll, you'll tell us right now, this was the golden age. Yeah, this is when, you know, shows like I Love Lucy, Ed Sullivan, Leave it the Beaver, you know, the, all the all the ones we think of now. This is when they were, you know, hitting. All, all um, in the same decade, yeah. Yeah, and uh, like, you know, like most uh, industry, comic cycles are cyclical. Uh, comics had already seen a few boom periods here. We had in the 1940s, superheroes hit, uh, you know, Superman hit in 38. Yeah. Um, 1947, crime comics hit, and then in 51, the horror comics uh, boom hit. Yeah, and these created big spikes in sales, so I, I only put this in to show that there is a little bit of normal business as usual here going on. You can't, you know, comics, even today, they have their booms and bust cycles. We're in sort of a little boom right now, but... Mm -hmm. That the you know if history plays itself out, that's not going to last forever, and we'll see what no. what happens down the line. No, and uh, you know comics took a pretty big sales blow before the code due to just the anti comics hysteria that we covered uh, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it was uh, less than a ten percent loss. Yeah, so that wasn't huge, but the, you know they felt it, and it, to be honest, some of these smaller outfits might have really felt it. I mean, I I don't really have specific statistics on that, but definitely. They were, they were feeling the pinch. But then, really, though, the comics code just collapsed the industry. I mean, it just took the wind out of everything. Sales, these horror comics and crime comics became so sanitized that nobody wanted to read them. There was nothing, there was no point to reading them. All of the salacious blood and boobies and whatever else had been stripped clean. Uh, in 1958, 24 of the 29 companies that originally made up the Comics Magazine Association of America and were therefore subject to the regulations of the CCA, they went out of business or it stopped comics production. So there were five left. Ridiculous. Uh, the remaining companies were Archie Harvey, which was only doing kid stuff at this time. That would have been, you know, Richie Rich and uh, uh, Casper. Casper, yeah, stuff like that. DC, Charlton, and American Comics Group, and Marvel, which probably wasn't called Marvel at that minute. Uh, Dell and Gold Key are still not, they're, they're around, but they're not submitting to the CCA. And Gilbertson, who produced Classics Illustrated, those are the, you know, illustrated versions of classic uh, novels. novels and stuff like that. Uh, I think they also had, like, you know, The Life of Abraham Lincoln and stuff like this. Uh, real tepid stuff. They were still around, but they were all, they were, even they were just doing reprints by the late 50s, early 60s. And frankly, I couldn't imagine what you would cut from any of these comics anyway no. if, you were, if you were the administrator of the code. Uh, between 1955 and 1961, the number of comics being published declined by 45%. You know, that is, that is an industry-killing number, folks. A lot of, you know, there, there are even companies out there that you think are unassailable, like, you know, say a McDonald's. If they, mm -hmm. if they lost 45% of their business over that short amount of time, six years... Uh, you might see McDonald's shut down, you know, but these, these companies aren't as um, flush with cash, I think, as some might think. Uh, in, McDonald's in, rebirth. You might see a McDonald's rebirth. I, I, I don't <laughs> want you to worry about any of the McDonald's executives. They'll be fine forever and their families. So don't, don't cry too much if that, but don't worry. I wouldn't worry too much about them losing 45% of their sales in six yeah, their years. Their parachutes are gilded just fine. They'll be, okay, yeah, they'll be just fine. Uh, and in 1962, comic sales were down 56% from a decade earlier. That is just a tremendous drop. And 10 years is a long time, but that's 10 years of pretty much steady decline, or at least probably since 1955 on. Uh, sure. Just shrinking, you know, the fewer and fewer comics on the stands, 
you know, there was there was also kind of something happening where some newsstands were opting to carry the the more profitable magazines. Uh, Playboy came out in the late fifties. Uh, Mad Magazine switched to a magazine format. So, you know, for the same real estate, instead of making you know two cents, you make a buck. Sure. So that oh, had a lot to do sense. with it. So it, uh, you know, comics took a serious hit from them from this code. But my question to you, Chris, is what was the code? Well, let's uh, let's get right into that. The original code was uh, it hit on October 26, 1954, and we're going to go through a little bit of it here. See here, part one: uh, crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice or to inspire others with the desire to imitate criminals. Uh, number two, no comic shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. And this is funny because uh, there, <laughs> there was something that Wortham had published that was, uh, he said it was a way to break into a window. Yeah. And the picture was actually a way to borrow a window. <laughs> it was a way to it was a way to lock a window. He had a, he had a totally but, backwards. Yeah, I don't I don't know what was uh, what was going on there, but that was actually part of the evidence. I, I found that uh, earlier. I forgot to send it your way. Well, if um, you know how to lock the window, then you can also break in the window. I think that's a fact. He's got to make sure none of the glass gets in your eye. That's all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, number three, uh, policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. I'm sensing a theme. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> uh, four, if crime is depicted, it shall be as sordid. It should be shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. So you, you can't have fun breaking that window. No, no, no. There's no. Uh, there's no living high on the hog anymore. No, no gold chains, no women. Nope. <laughs> it's just uh, bums. Uh, number five, criminals shall not be, be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. More of the same. <laughs> and uh, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil. I like that's that's a statement that kind of resonates. Good shall triumph over evil. Yep. And the criminal punished for his misdeeds. You know, and I wonder if that specific, uh, you know, edict made it so rare to have two, you know, stories that went over two or three issues early on. A lot, yeah. of, the, a lot of the early stories, definitely throughout the fifties and most of the sixties, it was one and done, and they and they ended with Batman wins all the time. You know, yeah, because so, yeah, you've got to wonder. Even you know, you couldn't uh, you couldn't have a cliffhanger where the uh, where the crook has the upper hand. Exactly. You know, it's like you you literally can't do one of the typical. Literary things going back to Sherlock Correct. Holmes and, and Sir yes. Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, like what will happen to you know, or even you know, any serial. So it, they really, you know, you see that they're really clipping the uh, nature of these comics yeah. and what they can. No show. same bad time, same bad channel for this. Exactly. I meanwhile on TV, you know, it's fine. Yep. Although <laughs> I gotta admit, the peril never seemed that dire to me. But anyway, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, number seven, scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. Number eight, no unique or unusual methods of concealing weapons shall be shown. More of that emulation fear. Uh, absolutely, yeah. That, that you might, uh, if you see monkey, see monkey do. Mm -hmm. uh, number nine, instances of law enforcement officers dying as a result of a criminal's activity should be discouraged. Uh, you know, if the criminal is a commie, that's probably fine though, because they're, they're, <laughs> they're we know they're evil. 
Yes. Uh, number 10, the crime of kidnapping shall never be portrayed in any detail, nor shall any profit accrue to the abductor or kidnapper. The criminal or the kidnapper must be punished in every case. Number 11, the letters of the word crime on a comics magazine cover shall never be appreciably greater than in dimension than the other words contained in the title. The word crime shall never appear alone on a cover. And number 12, restraint in the use of the word crime in titles or subtitles shall be exercised. So, I mean, with those last two, they eliminate several comics. Right, you they, know what I mean? they right seem away. to be pointing an arrow at somebody. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean you've, first of all, you've got crime does not pay. You've got crime and punishment. You've got, yeah, yeah, crime suspense stories on EC. You know, it really does seem a little targeted. Uh, some of these other companies didn't have to worry so much about uh, producing these kind of titles because yeah. it wasn't their bread and butter. So it's, it's starting to look a little bit pointed to me. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, we move into the general standards part B. Uh, number one, no comic magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. Mm, a little bit, again, a little pointed, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> who, who, who's, the, who's the guy they don't want? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, uh, all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall be permitted. Uh, number three, all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. They, they really didn't like them Tijuana Bibles. No, nope, they didn't want those. <laughs> they didn't want anything drawn by Jack Davis either. No, no, no. Uh, number four, inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be published only where the intent is to illustrate a moral issue, and in no case shall evil be presented allorally, uh, nor so as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. Uh, number five... Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Werewolfism. Is that a, is that yes. a, uh, is that a religion? Did it, uh, you, know any, you ever know any werewolfists in your day? I, that, that's, like, that's one of those things like if you, if you prick your foot on uh, some dirty nails. You, <laughs> <that> right? <laughs> you, might, you might catch a touch of the werewolfism. Yeah, I mean, yes. so, so the, this whole part is basically saying... We're ending horror comics. Horror comics yeah. are now over. Uh, they did try to stick around for a little while. EC pretty much dropped their line immediately, but other other guys tried to hang in there under these rules, and there's not much you can get done when you... Uh, no, not under these constrict- yeah, constrictions. You can't even show vampires and vampirism. It's a little ridiculous. Um, mm. Part H. Oh, no, uh, General Standards Part C, sorry. Uh, all apply to cover and the content of the books. So, uh, part one, number one, the dialogue, uh, profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. That's pretty vague, isn't it? It pretty much. I guess they couldn't say see you next Tuesday, though. That was pretty much what they're getting at. Uh, that was pretty big at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it probably should have been. Maybe they could have you know, gotten something past the code. This is um, true. Special precautions, Part B, uh, special precautions to avoid references to physical afflictions or deformities shall be taken. Like, why? You know what I mean? That's like, strange. That would mean no oracle. That's no what you oracle. Mean. Chris and I were just talking about it when uh, Barbara Gordon was oracle, and this this part of the code would kind of uh, preclude that even happening. But yeah. Puck um, would never join Alpha Flight. That's true. Yeah, exactly. There would be no dwarf. Uh, it, nope. So... Very strange part of the code, but I guess that was pretty normal for the 50s. Hmm. Uh, part C, although slang and colloquialisms are so acceptable, excessive use should be discouraged, and wherever possible, good grammar shall be employed. 
uh, which is not a restriction today, folks, if you read comics. <laughs> and we always speak grammatically sound, right? Yeah, pretty or much. Or should I say, we always talk grammatically we sound. We talk good. I think we, we talk good. <laughs> I think we talk all right, yeah. Um, number two, religion. Ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. Uh, number three, costume. Uh, part A, nudity in any fort is, form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. Uh, part B, suggestive or salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. Part C, all characters shall be depicted uh, in dress reasonably acceptable to society. I, it's so wide open, you know? Like, what, what does Isn't that it? mean? Yeah, because there's no, there's no hard and fast rule for that. No. It, what, reasonably acceptable to society, I, you know. Yeah, it's I, like, are we talking about the Amish? Or are we talking about it, the people on the street? Exactly. Who, who are, we talking about? We talk, are we talking about people in Times Square? Are we talking about sure. people in, you know, at, in the farmland? So it's, yeah. it's really is, uh, you know, anything goes, I think, for the administrator of the code. It's wide open. Very yeah. broad. Uh, and D, females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. And that, that's remained ever since. Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> we don't see any exaggeration of any female body parts. Never, never, ever. They're, they're, they're good at keeping that rule down. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next part, we have marriage and sex. Uh, part A, divorce shall be treat, shall not be treated humorously, so Santa cannot get divorced. I mean, I mean that uh, must literally be a reaction to that issue of panic that we talked about last be. episode. Because it's like... How often are we joking about divorce in these comics? I don't really remember that being a running yeah, theme. It's, uh, it's like, there were some bad it, marriages, but that was about it. Sure, sure. So divorce shall not be, not be treated humorously, nor represented as desirable, because everybody wants a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, part B, illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Violent love scenes, violent love scenes, <laughs> as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable, and that's another wide open one. Oh yeah. Because uh, what is a sexual abnormality? Exactly. Uh, we'll, yeah. We'll probably find out. Um, part C: Respect for parents, the moral code, and for honorable behavior shall be fostered. A sympathetic understanding of the problem of love is not a license for morbid distortion. Wow. Part D: The treatment of Live romance stories shall emphasize the value of home and the sanctity of marriage. Part E. Passion or romantic interest shall never be treated in such a way as to stimulate the lower and baser emotions. So, <laughs> What does that mean? So that's Sailor who went and bought all those romance comics for his next trip out. He's in trouble. Well, it's not his fault, you know. It's, no, it's, it's not. the comic's fault, you know. Yeah. He can't control his boner. No, he can't. No, he can't. <laughs> <laughs> Part F, seduction and rape shall never be shown or suggested. Now, now you know, hold on a sec. Are, like, are you equating seduction with rape? Because it's not the same thing, you know what I mean? Are, like, are, we, on a, are we on a college campus that's getting funded for, for rape? It could, for, you know. Uh, information? <laughs> you know, some people <laughs> might take it that way, you know. But, I mean, you know, seducing, that's part of romance, com- it's part of romance stories. It was such a such strange, like, uh, you know, comparison of these two it things. It is. Like it's, a, a false yeah, it's, equivalence. It, it's apples and elephants here. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, sex perver- uh, part G, sex perversion or any inference to same is strictly forbidden. Okay. So another another wide open one that's open for interpretation. Beyond the beyond the traditional Old Testament of you know doing it missionary style through a hole in a sheet. Yeah, with the lights out. I guess uh, yeah. I guess everything after that is could be considered a sex perversion. So mm-hmm. uh, there was no more of that for a long time. Now uh, there was also a code for advertising matter within the uh, comics, which you might have imagined. 
liquor and tobacco advertising is not acceptable. Essentially, I mean, this, this whole code, but this part especially, is saying comics are for kids. Yeah. Period. They are not, they are not for adults, and therefore there is, we cannot put adult ads in them. And it's it's crazy. I, I I would never think of seeing a liquor or a tobacco ad, you know, except for the tobacco is wacko ads. Of course, yeah. Although, yeah, you know, they never were, see that. tobacco ads were on the back of every single TV guide and throughout them, mm-hmm. throughout my, you know, my whole life and before. So, and, uh, well, they kind of don't make them anymore, but back when they sure. still did make them. And let me tell you, the TV guide was more ubiquitous in, in the American home than any comic book ever made. Uh, well, yeah, I guarantee. Yeah, we that. talked about that last week with uh, with that one guy who wasn't getting his TV guides because he was uh, refusing to stock certain undesirable books. Exactly. Yeah, and if he didn't he didn't have his TV guide, he was going to piss off a He's lot of customers. So that that, yeah. that was huge. I mean, it can't be TV guide really sold a lot of damn copies in its day, <laughs> uh, and it was weekly. Uh, number yes. number two, advertisement of sex and uh, advertisement of sex and sex instruction booklets are unacceptable. No Kama Sutra. Nope. Uh, number three, the sale of picture postcards, pinups, art studies, or any other reproduction of nude or semi-nude fi- nude figures is prohibited. Uh, number five, I remember some of these comics, although I guess by then things had loosened up, but in the 70s and 80s, they were kind of skirting around that one a little bit, you know? You can, I hear you can get a Raquel Welch uh, pillow. <laughs> exactly. Well, there you go. For example, <laughs> you get a Raquel Welch pillow and... I remember they had like a, some Vaughn Baudet shirts where you could see a little of that uh, cartoonized nipple. So, hmm. uh, but this this is still back in the uh, 50s, folks. Uh, number four, advertising the sale of knives or realistic gun gun facsimiles is prohibited. Number five, advertising for the sale of fireworks is prohibited. Number six, advertising dealing with the sale of gambling equipment or printed matter dealing with gambling shall not be accepted. Number seven, nudity with matriculate myth. Meretricious purpose and salacious postures. <laughs> oh boy. Shall not be permitted in the advertising of any product. Wow. Nudity with meretricious purpose. That is one of the <laughs> that is one of the lines of the day, folks. Yeah, if it's something you can, to get tattooed on a part of your body, yeah. If, if you yeah, if you can use that in, in, in your daily speech, I <laughs> you know, please look, contact us and we will say your name on the air. That's incredible. <laughs> Uh, clothed figures shall never be presented in such a way so as to be offensive or contrary to the good taste of morals. There's that good taste of morals again. Yep. Uh, number eight, to the best of his ability, each publisher shall ascertain that all statements made in advertisements conform to fact and avoid misrepresentation. Uh, number nine, advertisement of medical health or toiletry products of questionable nature are to be rejected. Advertisement for medical health or toiletry products endorsed by the American Medical Association or the American Dental Association shall be deemed acceptable if they conform with all other conditions of the advertising code. You can't get your uh, your uh, magic pimple cream or no. uh, or all that kind of or stuff. Or my snake oil. You know, I need no snake oil. I need that for my rheumatiz. <laughs> <laughs> for my gout. Exactly. <laughs> Now, uh, Kefauver wasn't done yet. He threatened a new investigation in August of 1955. Uh, that, that was the entire code that we just finished. That was that was it. Yeah. Um, 
Now, in August of 55, the publishers, they, they weren't too pleased. They were a little bit uh, <laughs> agitated over the uh, the potential for another investigation. Uh, Judge Murphy wrote to, Ke- to Kefauver on August 12th to say that the objecti- objectionable material had been flushed out by the CCA. And then he added, therefore, I should greatly appreciate your calling to my attention any new trends that might be open to criticism. It would also be helpful if you could send me any other material which you feel would guide us in our work. Um <laughs> more of this wide open you know it's like yeah but I, I think what he's also doing is he's putting key father to the to the thing like be like oh well you know we think we've done a good job but if you don't then please send us a detailed report and material yeah. and it's basically like now Here's it's on you yeah do you want to do some more work well okay here you go and and key father's response was a little bit more tepid Yes, uh, that, that investigation never actually happened, and uh, Kifava, he patted him on the back and said, I think you're doing all right. Yeah, you're, you're a good egg, kid. Don't you're worry about right. it. Don't worry. Uh, Kifava moved on to other things, uh, like becoming part of a losing presidential ticket with Adlai Stevenson uh, in uh, 1956. That's right. And later on, uh, passing that act that uh, I should have put that in here. The uh, 1962 act that you had in the other one that it allowed oh, the, for uh, babies. Yeah, this was a uh, this was something. Good. This was even back then. People were uh, up in arms about the pharmaceutical company costs. So what he uh, the, something that he passed. I don't remember the fellow he worked with, but uh, it uh, made generic medicines, but not generic medicines in the way we think of them now. Generic now is just like a non-brand name. Right. But back then, generic was a little bit less uh, stringent with <laughs> with their quality control. Yeah. And uh, of that, uh, thalidomide was one, and that was a, uh, a a morning sickness medicine that women were taking, and it was causing a, a very, very severe abnormalities and deformities. Widespread defects, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, and, pretty, it's pretty well-known uh, story. And it, it's, it's horrifying to see the... Uh, like these contraptions that that were these leather strapped contraptions that these babies had to be put in to to just sit mm-hmm. because they 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 had arms coming out of different parts of their body it's it's very it's it looks like science fiction it's but, pretty uh, harrowing yeah it's it, it's, it's a lot not of, something to look at yeah pretty deformed it's, they got they got like flippers and stuff if you if you're into that you can look up thalidomide but uh, thalidomide babies yeah but anyway but, uh, so so that kind of that that came out of Kefauver that's that's not maybe a great part of his legacy, but you know, hey, we can't win them all, and 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 that that was sort of a a snowball effect of you know he may he yeah, had one act for his stock, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, that's not even comics. Yes, onward and upward. Charles Murphy retired uh, as the administrator of the CCA on June tenth, nineteen fifty six. Uh, President Goldwater wrote Kefauver, you will be kept advised of all developments in this matter. We assure that whoever is selected is the proper individual to carry on the same vigorous enforcement of the code of ethics as has been practiced heretofore. I mean, you can tell these guys are just scared witless of yeah. Kefauver. They don't want to, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. They don't want to poke know, the bear. We yeah. know you're watching, and we will take care of it. We're, we're on it. Then he was replaced by Mrs. Guy Percy Trulock. She was the former president of the New York City Federation of Women's Clubs and president of the Women's Press Club. Kind of a high society lady. Uh, definitely very very moral moralistic. It's, I thought it was interesting that they even hired a woman to this position in 56. Sure. Uh, I think what it came down to a lot of it was in the comics industry, especially as it's contracting, beggars can't be choosers. Uh, but also sort of put on a... Here's mom. Mom's gonna read your comics before you, you know, before you get them. Make sure they're okay for you. 
so it worked in that respect. It, you know, they weren't hiring her to do engineering or anything, and that would have made men yeah. freak out. At least, she, at least she was just sort of a moralizer. Uh, she retired in 1965, and Stanley offered her a lifetime subscription to any Marvel comic book she wanted, and she chose Thor because of the beautiful language. Uh, she was replaced by Leonard Darwin. He was the executive director of the CCA since 1955, and he was an attorney at law. So just in this time, these three people that were the administrators, um, you see, the uh, first guy's a judge. You know, the, yep. second, the second person is a, uh, you know, moralizing kind of a high society type, but kind of someone somewhat in the public view. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call her a reality star, but... A name people knew and a name that people respected. By the yeah. third time, they're just getting the guy that was already there. He's yeah, just a, eh, he's a lawyer. <laughs> internal. And the, yeah. and the attitude, too, is that now now it's it's instead of being a judge, it's a lawyer. A lawyer is someone you would think to uh, seek ways to exploit legal language uh, yeah. instead of follow it. Uh, that's one theory. Anyway, but my point being that, you know, things had loosened up around there that they weren't quite as... Uh, scared and morally minded by uh, the time Leonard Darwin was. Uh, yeah, like the shock has kind of worn off a little bit. It has, yeah. So I think we had that big shock to our system in '55, and then we kind of got used to it and saw that there was some room to wiggle here and there, um, leading to uh, the first set of revisions to uh, the code. Those hit on January 28, 1971. <laughs> And our first one here, vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic tradition such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and any other high-caliber literary works by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, whoever that is, who's Saki? I don't know. Conan Doyle, and and other respected authors who work whose works are read in schools around the world. <laughs> Two, <laughs> narcotics or drug addiction shall not be presented except... As a vicious habit, mm. narcotics or drugs, in or the illicit traffic in addiction-producing narcotics or drugs, shall not be shown or described if the presentation. Uh, a long list of uh, of if-thens here. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. A tends in any manner to encourage, stimulate, or justify the use of such narcotic, narcotics or drugs. B stresses visually by. T- text or dialogue the temporary attractive benefits c suggests that narcotics or drug habit can be easily broken or d uh, shows or describes details of narcotic or drug procurement or the implements or devices used in taking narcotics or drugs or the taking of narcotics or drugs in any manner (laughs) i mean this is is the kind of thing where if you were a comics publisher you'd start reading this you'd be like forget it i don't don't need to do the drug story whatever you know (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I was it. Our man doesn't need his miracle. Or whatever yeah, he's he fine. Yeah, he doesn't do that anymore. It's all it's all good living and eating steak. Yeah, it's the sun. Um, let's see. E emphasizes the profits of the of the narcotics or drug industry. Or F involves children who are shown knowingly to use or traffic in narcotics or drugs. Or G shows or implies a casual attitude towards the taking of narcotics or drugs. Or finally, H emphasizes the taking of narcotics or drugs throughout or in a major way of the story and leaves the denouement then leaves the denouement to the final panel. So you can't kick the habit in the last page, I guess. Interesting though, you know, because it's I, I wonder if that particular part was sort of a reflection back to the crime comics. Like I said, you'd read yeah. this story, this four four or five page story where the criminal's just winning left and right, left and right, and then in the last couple of panels he gets shot in front He's of a movie theater. 
and it's like, oh, crime does not pay except for the 15, 20 years that it was paying plenty. Uh, yeah. You know, all, all this too, I wonder how much of this was a reaction to uh, underground comics, Zap comics of the time. They would have been out, <laughs> would have been fairly popular. Some other ones too. Um, uh, Wally Wood had a, had a comic uh, called Wits End that, that was known at the time, and they, they were showing whatever they wanted because they didn't give a crap about the comics code. They were being distributed. Yeah through head shops mainly and kind of word of mouth if you could get your hands on them. So I wonder, I know that when DC petitioned to change the code, that was part of their argument. They were like, there are these other comics where they do drugs the whole time. Yeah. And uh, we, need, we, need a, we need a free hand to tell some of these stories that we want to tell. But anyway, I, you know, that's just some conjecture on my part. Sure. Um, M. Leonard Darwin Esquire retires in 1979, remaining in an advisory capacity Better known as still pulling a paycheck. I, uh, I want to be a consultant. That's what my career goals are. I mean, this 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 uh, code, the Comics Code Authority, it really is like this sub industry. You know, this sub mm -hmm. thing of an industry. So it's it's a good place to hide some graft. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like you know, it's like the comic. What what what, what does it cost? Well, it costs whatever the comics publishers want to pay to allow it to, to run, join. You know? in, yeah. So it's uh you know it could could be quite lucrative, and you don't have to do much but read comics and. Tell people what they what they did wrong with them. Um, that's it. So the CMAA, that's the uh, Comics Manufacturers Association of America, they reorganized contracting with the Trade Group Associates Inc Incorporated to manage them. Trade Group Associates Incorporated was a company I could find out I could find nothing out about. Uh, no. I wonder if they this the reorganization was essentially a renaming. Yeah, I don't know are. if this was a real, like a real thing. You know, it might, it might, they might have existed just as sort of a shell company to handle the the, <laughs> the CCAs so that the publishers didn't have to be as involved. Uh, yeah. But they would. They hired a succession of somewhat random, unqualified administrators until the end of the CCA, which would have been in 2011. Uh, there was another set of revisions in 1989. Uh, number one, healthy, wholesome lifestyles will be presented as desirable. However... The use and abuse of controlled substances, legal and illicit, are facts of modern existence and may be portrayed when dramatically appropriate. Now, I mean, that's a mm -hmm. big change. That's uh, a huge concession, yes. And, and now the broad speech is in favor of the comics publishers. You know, instead of yep. keeping it very broad as far as interpretation on the code side, now it's like, what is dramatically appropriate? Well, anything. The definition's left with the yeah. publishers, yeah. And, and not long after this is when that Batman, remember the Batman, uh, was it the cult? No, it was Venom, right? Where he uh, yep. where he, he takes the Venom. Yeah. He gets hooked that on the Venom and he actually locks himself Legends in of the Dark Knight, yep. So the, I, I, wouldn't, I think that was probably the following year, maybe even this year. It was, it was that close to it, and this is definitely... Uh, exploiting that new code and number two the other the other part of the revision in general recognizable national social political cultural ethnic and racial groups religious institutions law enforcement authorities will be portrayed in a positive light these include and then we kind of go forward social groups identified by the lifestyle such as homosexuals the economically disadvantaged the economically privileged the homeless senior citizens minors etc so they kind of loosened of, up their hands a little yeah. bit. Um, you know, one of the main reasons, and we don't have the time to go into this now, <laughs> and we will talk about it a little bit, a little bit later on. But one of the main reasons that this comic code really loosened up a lot in the in the late '80s uh, and throughout the '80s, actually, it was because of the direct market, which which little by little was replacing the traditional distribution 
uh, newsstand distribution. Yeah. Uh, you know, just simply put, if you own a comic book store, you sell comic books. Well, you get customers that can come in and maybe handle some, you know, racy stuff in their comic books. Uh, we'll go into that someday, though. That, that's a yeah. very important part of comics history and a very weird part of it, and also in a way. <laughs> but uh, right now, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, I think you're going to hear a little bit more from File Confidential, some uh, testimony for some children whose minds were warped by reading comics. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the actual changes that were made to individual comics by the code over the years and how those and changed. The way that the, yeah. the way the comics uh, themselves changed the code. Very much, yeah. And that's, uh, there was sort of a back and forth between them. So uh, st- sit tight, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Story, I try always to contact the most highly qualified experts on the subject, so let's talk to some experts on comic books. Your name, son? Bernie Kenner. And how old are you, Bernie? Fifteen. Fifteen. And you read comic books, too, yes. don't you? Do they bother you in any way? At first, they did. How'd they bother you? Well, it was bad dreams at night. Mm-hmm. used to talk in my sleep. used to talk in your sleep? Yes. Uh-huh. Tell me about some of the stories you've read in comic books. I read books this one too. about this lady. She always liked diamonds, so she used to date these men and used to buy her diamonds, and then she killed them. The, I, I didn't follow you. The men would buy her diamonds? Diamonds, and then she used to take them home and kill them and mm-hmm. bury them in the basement. This kept going on for about a year, and the basement's all full of graves. There's only room for one more grave. So she says to herself, I want the richest man in town to buy me a diamond, then I could kill him. So she went into this jewelry store and met this man, and they started dating each other. So the man bought the diamond, and they went home. Then she put a knife on him, but the man took it away and killed him. And they went downstairs, and the man buried her. And then he came upstairs, and he said to himself, You see, darling, I'm not a collector of diamonds, but of hands. And he, he cut off her hands. That made you pretty sick. Yes. I can believe that. All right, Bernie, thanks a lot. You're welcome. May I have your name? Ronald Kirara. Talk up a little bit, huh? Ronald Kirara. And how old are you, Ronald? Twelve. What do you think of comic books, Ronald? They're all right, but uh, they scare me. They scare you? Yes. Why do they scare you? Tell me about how they scare you. Well, when I, go, when I sometimes read them, I go to uh, at night where I... When at night when I sleep, I dream. Mm-hmm. And so once I dreamt uh, that this Martian from Mars came after me, and I woke up real fast. Mm-hmm. And this was after you'd read one of these horror comics, huh? And does your mother know that these comic books upset you when you read them? No. Doesn't realize that, huh? Tell me about some of the stories you read in comic books, will you, Ronald? Well, I read this uh, Frankenstein. He was at this uh, man's old man's house, and uh, this, uh, he was a friend of this man. So one day, um, these two men came in and uh, they killed him. So Frankenstein, he killed them. And then he buried old man. And then later, anyone that touched the tree would be killed. The tree was the old man buried under the yes. tree? I see. And so uh, one night, this uh, young couple, uh, they were in love. So they uh, carved a heart on a tree. And uh, when he saw that, he killed them and hung them on a tree, and the birds, they picked at them. The birds picked at them? Yes, until they died. Uh-huh. All right, Ronald, thank you very much. You want to give me your name, son? David Freeman. And how old are you? Eleven. Tell me how comic books make you feel, Dave. Well, they don't make me feel too good. A couple of times you read a comic book, I threw up. 
Can you tell me a story that you read in a comic book? Yes. Uh, I read a story about this baseball game. And this man, he was losing his team for the pennant. And he uh, uh, tried to uh, kill this guy, put some poison on his shoes. And when he went to first base, he uh, cut the guy's foot and poison got into his foot and he died. And the team found out. So they had a night game. And then they got this guy and they killed him. And then they used his head for the ball. And every time they threw the uh, ball, their blood kept on uh, squirting out. And they used his feet for the bat. And they used his insides for different bases and uh, outline of the game. Do your folks know that you read these comic books? No, but my friends, uh, they gave it to me. You know, they let me read a couple. You, know, you mean you're not allowed to have them in your home? No. And you get them from your pals? Yes. Where are you from, Dave? Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome back. Uh, We just finished talking about the comics code, and now we're going to go into the period during the code where there was a little bit of a give and take between the industry and the CCA. Yeah, a little uh, applications of the code. Yes, I couldn't think of a better place to start than uh, the story of uh, Judgment Day in Weird Fantasy number 18. This hit uh, April 19th, or dated April 1955, so we're still we're still within the first year of yeah. the CCA's rule. Brand new, and, yeah. Yeah, and this is a this is a story by Al Feldstein with art by Joe Orlando and our old friend Bill Gaines. <laughs> He's back again. He's all over the the beginning <laughs> of this, isn't he? He is. He is. Uh, he is the star of this. Yeah. Now this this uh, story we had uh, this story in we had fantasy Judgment Day, is uh, it was a rejected story. It was rejected by the authority. Uh, it's about an astronaut who, at the very end of the uh, of the story, is revealed to be a black man. Yeah. And uh, the CCA administrator, Judge Charles Murphy, advised Gaines they would approve the book only if that final page was changed. Yeah. The final panel was changed. Which is the whole point, you know, which I'll say is the whole point of yes. the story. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, we have a quote here from comics historian Digby Deal that he recounted in Tales from the Crypt, the official archives. He said that this really made him go bananas in the Code Czar's office. <laughs> uh, Al Feldstein was uh, quoted as saying, Judge Murphy was off his nut. He was really out to get us. Uh, I went, and he goes, I went back in there with the story, and Murphy says, it can't be a black man. Which was the whole point of the story? It was a, it was a basically a racism story with humans and robots, right? Yeah, he it, this 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 astronaut is on a planet populated by robots, and they have strife between each other depending on how what they look like. Yeah, and, and then he takes it off, and it's supposed to be a you know commentary on uh, um, current events of terrestrial the time. racism. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so this was the whole point of the story. Uh, Gaines eventually gets involved via telephone. He tells them to go screw themselves, threatens to expose, uh, expose them as racist. Um, his quotes are, this is ridiculous. I'm going to call a press conference on this. You have no grounds, no basis to do this. I will sue you. Uh, if they do not give that code, the issue of the code seal, I would, I would see that the world found out why. Um, the code, they ultimately relented and approved the book because, uh, you know, they, we, we just went through the, the code line by line. I don't remember them saying anything about no black people. Alone. No. In fact, it says to be tolerant of or to, you know, yes, to, to show all races. them in a positive light of all races. But, you know. Absolutely. Um, now, um, Murphy, he <laughs> he's kind of a dick. He needed to get the last word. <laughs> he said that, uh, okay, you could run it, but you have to remove the beads of sweat from the brow of the astronaut. 
Now, this was an autistic call by the by Feldstein in Orlando. The, the sweat was supposed to mirror, you know, stars in space. You know, he had his dark skin with uh, these glimmering, shiny beads of sweat. It was supposed to look like space. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it went through. But, uh, you know, it's just, it just it's interesting that so early in the code's rule, something like this happens. And, and of course, it's got to be Bill Gaines. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like if, he, if he was feeling maybe a little paranoid about the CCA before, well, now he definitely now felt paranoid. He had a reason absolutely. to. Like, you guys are just sniping for me. But as we know, through history, Bill Gaines sort of got the last laugh. Uh, Mad Magazine, which was a comic book uh, that ran... Prior to Panic, that you probably are very familiar with, uh, if you read comics or books or anything in the last 50 years, uh, he changed it from a comic book to a traditional magazine, a black and white format that most of us are more familiar with from our uh, childhoods, and I think yes. that's the way it is now, even though it is a DC Comics thing. Um, this circumvented the CCA entirely. Uh, it began with Mad Number 24, July 1955. Now, it actually wasn't done to circumvent the CCA. It was really done to retain Kurtzman. He wanted to leave, partly over panic. Uh, mm-hmm. We went into this story last episode, but, um, you know, Kurtzman started Mad. Then Al, uh, Bill Gaines' right-hand man, Al Feldstein, wanted to try it out, too. So he started Panic two years later. And then Kurtzman was annoyed that... You know how come he has two? How come there's two humor magazines? So uh, the idea was to keep him um, longer. They kind of went into a more serious uh, format, black and white format. Had more articles than there were panel by panel parodies and stories. And if you've read Mad, you know what I'm talking about. It's all like you know gadgets to make the home home life easy and you know stuff like that. Uh, little sure. little vignettes, little jokes. Uh, Kurtzman actually left the next year anyway, which was kind of messed up. But I don't think uh, Bill Gaines was upset because he made more money off Mad Magazine than EC Comics ever made. And within a year or two, I think, maybe, uh, that was the only thing they published. EC Comics folded. They became Mad Publications. And uh, the rest is history that we may get into sometime. Um, uh, Another time, and and these are not all of the times the code ever Applied, or was challenged. Or yeah, or was yeah, if we were to do that, then this that would be another <laughs> five parts to this thing. So we're just gonna, we're yep. doing a kind of a hit parade of what I you know Chris and I thought were some of the funnier or more interesting, more noteworthy, yeah, yeah, noteworthy uh, changes. So uh, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, number two, July nineteen sixty eight. There's an almost wordless page of panels that alludes to Nick Fury doing it with a female agent. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty clear, really, uh, except that obviously you don't see any nudity or humping, but uh, there's like, you know, uh, some lips in one panel, there's a phone off the hook in another panel, Uh, they embrace, there's a long shot of them like hugging in the the last panel of of the page, and the CCA rejected it for being too racy. You know, it's it's straight. You really got to see it because it almost just looks like you could perceive it as just several disparate panels of just images. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you could also definitely say that it implied some kind of sexual contact. So John Ramita Sr. He did some last-minute art corrections. He erased some cleavage. He puts the receiver back on the telephone. But you know, what's oddly, he's showing it then ringing and being unanswered. Which has which has the same effect in a way, you know what I mean? Same that connotation, sure. Something it's is going something's going on <laughs> that is stopping Nick Fury from answering the phone. You know, it's, it's the same thing. Um, and replace the last panel with a shot of Nick Fury's gun and holster draped over the back of a couch. Uh, Jim Steranko, who drew the original 
um, pages and, and drew Nick Fury, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. He congratulated Ramita for circumventing the code, and Ramita had never thought about what a <laughs> holstered gun implies. You know, that could also be seen as very sexual also. But Absolutely. it just goes to show you can think of anything as sexual. You know, this is a, we are human animals. And, uh, you know, it could have, been, could have been a banana sitting between two oranges, and you could have said <laughs> that was something sexual too. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it's probably why the code was left so nebulous initially. It's just uh, whatever we think yeah. <laughs> might might pertain to this is what it's going to be. Um, now, one of the more famous uh, pushbacks against the uh, the uh, code was uh, a Stan Lee uh, drug storyline in Amazing Spider-Man. It was uh, three issues going from number 96 to 98 uh, during uh, May to July 1971. Now, uh, issue 97, which would be the middle part, yeah. uh, that runs without the the code authority stamp, the the famous seal. And uh, this is a this is a funny one because this story was written at the behest of the U.S. government, uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Uh, Stan receives a letter from them, and uh, they they see that comics are a good uh, way of giving information, give uh, to giving information to a certain population. Yeah. And uh, they want him to write a story about the evils of drugs. Uh, and this, and, this uh, was Nixon's administration, folks, in case you are uh, unclear on the time. Yeah. And, and he, besides being a big, uh, maybe one of the first really big anti-drug presidents, but, you know, he definitely was someone. He also reached out to Elvis and uh, he yeah. was—he was. This is he was administration. pop culture oriented. Yeah, they—they yeah. they were very savvy about pop culture, and I think this was part of that. I mean, he—he told—he asked people to sock it to him. That's <laughs> right, exactly. Around. Yeah, he was on laughing. So <laughs> he was on laughing. He was one of the one of the regular guys. Yeah. Now, uh, Stan wanted to write a story that had drug themes, rather than a story about drugs. He didn't want to make it a sermon. He—that's what he, he said. He didn't want to be, you know, preaching yeah. to the kids. Now, uh, from uh, Stan Lee's Amazing Marvel Universe, we got some quotes here. Uh, when he when he put this story forward, uh, the code said, "Oh no, you can't do this story." When asked why not, they say, "According to the rules of the Code Authority, you can't mention drugs in a story." Now, when Lee made it clear that this was an anti-drug story, they said, "Oh no, it doesn't matter. You mentioned drugs." <laughs> <laughs> now, when Lee tells them that it was written that this is being written at the behest of the feds. They say again, it doesn't matter. You can't mention drugs. <laughs> uh, the issue that that one issue that ran without the code stamp of approval, which was the first from a major publisher to be to run without that since 1954, yeah, which is amazing, you know. And as far Isn't as it? I know, it did not have a hiccup in distribution. Uh, although uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Yeah, I would imagine it wouldn't. I mean, it's, it's still amazing, Spider-Man. And you can still, um, I mean, you can still, the fact that you can find this comic out in the wild sure. suggests that it was for sale some, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it appeared on, on a stand or two. Yeah. Um, Lee, uh, Lee goes on to say that he feels that they would, have been, they would have done more harm to the country by not running the story than by running it. And then he has the crazy idea that he feels that the United States government somehow took precedence over the CCA. Yeah, somehow, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, a few notes of interest here. The word drugs is not contained in the code, and drug use is not specifically prohibited by the code. I mean, we just went line by line through the code. There's yeah. no mention of drugs. It doesn't say drugs uh, at all. No. It, it, it says something about enhancements, though, or something like this. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, it doesn't say you can't use the word drug. It just isn't in there. Yeah, or, or, you, can't, or you can't portray any kind of drug use. Um, 
Now, uh, an issue of uh, Strange Adventures, it's number number 205 from October 1967, which would feature the first appearance of Dead Man, has, a character, has the character battling opium dealers. I mean, that's drugs. Yeah, it's, but they were, and they were that Asian. was approved. That was okay. <laughs> you see. They were heathens, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, the uh, CCA administrator, Leonard Darwin, he was out sick when the story came across the desk, or at least that's the story they're telling. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. just editorializing on <laughs> my part. Now, the uh, decision to ultimately reject Stan's book was made by Archie Comics publisher John Goldwater. St- still the president of the CCA. I think so, yeah. 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 What, 54, 60? Yeah, but almost 20 years later. Yeah, 20 years um, later. God. <laughs> Now the story, I mean, the the story it's 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 very tame by our standards, I'm sure. But uh, you know, in '96, the the first issue of that story, Spider-Man rescues a man on a roof who believes he either believes he's a lion or an eagle, whichever one of those can fly. <laughs> um, he tries to walk on air, and lucky for him, Spider-Man was just swinging by. It's an eagle. Now this was it's an eagle, dude. Yes. That's the one. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, now this one was approved by the Comics Code. Yeah. I mean, this guy was very obviously on something, but they approved it. Now, in issue 97, this is the one that was not approved. Uh, Harry Osborn, we see his medicine cabinet. It's very well stocked. And uh, we learn that he's been taking pills so he can function every day. He takes some to sleep. He takes some to wake up. He, he, he's, he's self-medicating. He's getting through the day. And uh, he's resorted to drugs, which are unnamed. They don't say a name. It's just unnamed crazy pills from a bottle in his medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. And he turns to them because Mary Jane Watson dumped him. And uh, by all appearances, these are over-the-counter drugs. I mean, they're not. He's not shooting up. There's not a. You know, it's not a baggie anywhere. It's just a a thing of pills. pills. They look like aspirins, as I remember. That's what it looks like. like. A a bear that with a line down the middle. You know. That's exactly what it looks like. I just read it this morning, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, he appears to overdose at the end of the issue. Now, the final issue, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a feel-good ending. Uh, Norman Osborn, as the Green Goblin, he's shocked to see what's become of his boy, and he's kind of shocked back to sanity for the time being. Uh, Harry gets better. Um, we're not really sure if his I'm-so-excited addiction <laughs> gets brought up much in the future. I... I yeah, I'm in and out of Spider-Man, so I don't know if this has become a character beat for him, but I don't think it necessarily has. I don't believe it did. Uh, you know, yeah, later on, he, he he did become the Green Goblin himself, right? Didn't he pick yeah. up the mantle? And, he did. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm also in and out, so I, I can't claim to read every single yeah. one, but I don't remember it ever coming up again. No, because that was under uh, J.M. DeMatteis and uh, Sal Buscema. They told uh, the last story of uh, Harry as the Goblin. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we could ask them. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reception of this book was overwhelmingly positive. It was, it was highly praised. They received a flood of positive feedback from parents, citizens groups, teachers, and religious organizations. Like, what a change. What, what a difference yep. a decade makes, folks. Uh, the very people that were, you know, trying to shut down comics are... Mm-hmm. Uh, Congratulating him, and per Neil Adams and Wizard Number Zero, two thousand three, the code was totally rewritten because of Stan and that cover within the month, and mm-hmm. uh, that allowed the next comic to uh, make a make its appearance. Uh, it was Snowbirds Don't Fly, which is a two part story in Green Lantern Green Arrow number eighty five eighty six that would run from uh, cover dates would have been August September, and then October November nineteen seventy one. Uh, Hal and Ollie, they fight a bunch of junkies who are looking for cash for their next fix. And they're surprised to find that Ollie's uh, ward, Roy Harper, who we know as Speeder, Speedy, uh, later Arsenal, um, 
uh, you know, later became one of the outlaws with the Red Hood. You know, he's, he's, he's been around a long time. But he's there with the junkies. Uh, of course, uh, Oliver assumes, oh, he must be undercover. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting, you know, getting to the root of this drug trade or whatever. But as we find out through the issue, uh, he is actually a junkie himself by the end of that first issue. We see him actually shooting up now. I mean, what's what's yep. really interesting is we actually see that on the cover as well. Yeah, uh, it just shows how much things had changed because I believe there was a cover for the Spider-Man story which was much more upfront with the pills that was changed, even though mm-hmm. they weren't going to run with the CCA. Uh, either way, yeah. Either way, I think I think you know Stanley wasn't trying to. You know, he he was trying to rock the boat. He wasn't trying to annihilate Marvel. Uh, you know, so I think he knew to pull back at least a little bit on the cover. And I can't remember the cover, but I have seen a version where like the front, the foreground is just like five, you know, what looks like tablets of aspirin. Uh, on the cover of Green Lantern Green Arrow, he's straight up got his sleeve rolled up. There's a there's oh, the a paraphernalia. Yeah, the paraphernalia is out. It's clear what's happened. And you, you know, unless I'm remembering wrong, I believe the needle is entering. The arm in the in the last panel of the first issue, uh, of course I wouldn't worry too much because in the next issue at number eighty six, um, Black Canary kind of t- well Ollie kicks Roy Harper out. Black Canary takes him in. Uh, it takes about seventy two hours and he kicks the habit, and then mm-hmm. later on he comes back to Ollie, punches him in the face, and says thanks thanks for being a dick to me. So uh, <laughs> Neil Adams had some quotes in Comic Scene Magazine number twenty seven from nineteen ninety two. Uh, he says, we could have done it first and been the ones to make the big move. Popping a pill and walking off a roof isn't the sort of thing that happens, but heroin addiction is. To have it happen to one of our heroes was potentially devastating. Anyway, the publishers at DC, Marvel, and the rest called a meeting, and in three weeks, the comics code was completely rewritten, and we did our story. Uh, in Wizard Magazine number 0, 2003, he says, Stan took the ball and nobody said no. It became a thing to talk about. DC Comics was fit to be tied. They had it in the palm of their hands, and they dropped it. So these issues yeah, were... What, sorry. They, were ori- they were originally... They, uh, they wanted to put them out, but I think Julia Schwartz declined them because he, he didn't want to rock, rock the boat. Yeah, no, I, I, I do believe that's true, that they had written this story quite a bit before uh, the Spider-Man story came out, uh, and it was rejected just by editorial itself, which was yeah. probably, you know, uh, if that would have been their battle... You know, the same battle standard, they, these guys would have had to do it, but I guess knowing that you were going to win in the end it makes it different. Uh, so these were approved by the CCA because the code had been changed to allow these kind of things. Uh, Neil and Adams had a bit of a dis- disagreement over the way the story ended, which I do know about, and maybe we'll get to that one of these days, or maybe that'll be a cosmic treadmill yeah, subject. Uh, it's pretty interesting. You know, the two of them have, have an incredible career together, but they were not exactly buddies. Yeah, uh, very different people in a lot of ways, but that's uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about them someday. Uh, open the door for a lot more socially relevant comics. Among them, uh, one of your favorites and one of your best reviewed <laughs> on your website was Teen Titans anti drug series, a part of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, and those were released without CCA endorsement. Yep. Uh, they were they were given away free. Also, I think that might you know yeah. they they you couldn't find them on the newsstand, so I guess. They didn't worry about that, but it's interesting. Like they, you know, by that time, by the '80s, it shows how the power of the CCA is severely waning. It, it no longer carries the cachet it once did. And, yeah, they're uh, not a they're not a check or balance anymore. Exactly. Yeah, people aren't necessarily looking for that stamp for you know a quality uh, comic or whatever a, you know mm. moralistic comic. So 
even these these anti-drug comics, which if you can find them, are really worth they're, getting, folks. They're, yeah, they're so good. They're, they're novelty in themselves. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you ever if you ever wanted to say like, what would Teen Titans be like if there was no Robin? Well, here's your chance, folks. They're all in those comics. Yeah, the, Hal Jordan's part of them, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> looks sort of like him. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, we we talked earlier about how uh, the some of the changes to the artwork and stories, uh, like that picture of uh, uh, Kifova with the uh, witch on one side and just the old lady on the other. You mm-hmm. know, they they doctored up the art to make it a little bit less ugly, and uh, that was a uh, you know they did that when they reprinted comics after the Code Two. You know, some comic stories from before 54, they had to be redacted before being reprinted. Yep. And uh, you had situations where, you know, you'd have a fella getting a gun pointed at him or, or, or a knife plunged into him, and the gun or the knife were removed. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, looked like, it looked like, you know, just people were waving their fists at one another. Yeah, people were falling down bloodlessly, and yep. you never knew what happened. <laughs> yeah, it's like they just faint at the side of a fist. And... Uh, in war comics, uh, despite weapons being present, because it's a war comic, they no longer cause blood dispute. So uh, they just fell down from the shock. Usually, as I recall, just held their stomachs and sort of crumpled over, you know, kind of neatly. Yeah, it's kind of like the school play version. Exactly. Ah, you got me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the communists, those evil, whatever they are, they, they can be shown killing innocents, of course. Right. That's what they do. That's, that's just realism. That's all. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can't. You, you got to keep them accurate. <laughs> um, now, corpses. So you, you know, once a staple of war in Western comics, they vanished. Airplanes no longer crashed to the ground when fired upon. Instead, they just exploded in, in a in a cute little puff of cloud. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean we, we were looking at pictures uh, earlier in the week where it's like uh, it's like people standing in front of like a pile of bodies, and then in the next the the the, the, re, the revised panel they're just standing in front of nothing, just nothing, it's, and reacting to it though too, or like, or like reacting to or I, there was one where the uh, the wife is mourning her dead husband, and in the the, re, the new panel she's just crying over nothing. There's nothing in front yeah. of her, you know. She's uh, <laughs> so it really is ridiculous. They they did not take a ton of care no. to redo a lot of these. <laughs> and uh, you know, many of these code Arab era panels uh, would be used by pop artist Roy Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein. I was said Lichtenstein, uh, but I don't know. Lichtenstein, sure. we'll do that. <laughs> In his most famous comic, uh, most famous blown up comics panel stuff. Yeah. Um, now, for reprints, bodies were erased entirely, but the people, like we just said, the people reacting or grieving, they're still right. there. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, now we move on to. Uh, the mysteriously missing Two Face. Mm-hmm. Now this 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 is a, uh, you know, I, I I submitted this whole thing to the outline, but I just yeah. want to just want to give a little preamble that it, this is just Please. sort of a weird byproduct of the code, you know, that you would that you wouldn't think about, but you know, Chris will go right into it, and I'll probably yap over it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he first appeared as Harvey Kent, K-E-N-T, in a three-part story beginning in Detective Comics number 66 back in August of 42. Uh, he begins with his acid scarred uh, district attorney origin and dies at the end. Uh, the name was changed to Dent during this because I think there's another guy named Kent uh, in the DC. Yeah, universe. you might have heard of him. I'm not sure. Yeah, so he, Bob he Kent or goes. something. I think uh, so. Yeah, Bob but, Hope's uh, special uh, uh, secret. Uh, that's other right. It's, uh, his, uh, <laughs> instead of super hip, this is one nephew, and then uh, yes. Bob Kent <laughs> is the other one. Uh, yeah, and so, as you'll say, though, this was a tremendously popular character. Despite his death, mm-hmm. he came back, so. 
Yeah, they brought him back three times with other people playing the role. Uh, in Batman 50, so some, what, six years later, in December of 48, you had the return of Two-Face. And it turned out, now this part is, this was, uh, it was Harvey Dent's butler. Yeah, he, was, uh, he, he pretended to be his butler. Um, but he was really a criminal. He was really a criminal that worked with Two-Face. Uh, it was sort of a convoluted story, but yeah, you know, Batman and I, I believe Commissioner Gordon had gone together to Harvey Dent's old place where the butler still was, and or pretend a guy pretending to be a butler, and he also played Two Face to sort of uh, freak everybody throw off out. The scent. Yeah, throw off the scent. And then uh, a couple years later, in uh, Batman 68, December 51, the new crimes of Two-Face. Now, this time it was an actor called Paul Sloan playing Two-Face in a movie. He was scarred by real acid. Yeah, it was switched Uh, out of fake acid, I guess, from the prop prop acid. uh, Just like in real life. Yeah. (laughs) The following year, in Detective Comics number 187, we had, uh, this September of 52, we had the double crimes of Two-Face. Now we have... uh, now we have a fellow by the name of George Blake playing the role. He's a, um, He manages a Two-Face exhibition. Yep. It's like, why not? This is, sure. Yeah, why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the man himself finally comes back a couple of years later in February 1954's Batman number 81. Story's called Two-Face Strikes Again. Harvey Dent's plastic surgery is ruined by an explosion, rever- revealing his scars anew. Uh, we, we're not going to really go into how he's still alive. He Don't worry about it. Right he was just back. <laughs> it's, everything was fine, folks. It was, uh, his, sure. it, the stories of his death were wildly exaggerated. Yes. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is you know, the more uh, contemporary one with the, you know, he flips the coin, all that good stuff. Yeah, he wears the, two, the, the, the uh, suit that's half and half. So, I mean, you know, I just, I just want to stop, you know, to look at this. You know, he shows up in 1942, but then in yeah. uh, between 1948 and 1954... They bring him back, you know, four times, which yeah, is, which he's, is he's quite there. a lot in those days. You know, I mean, now, you know, now in comics, especially like Batman comics, well, yeah, it might as well be called Batman featuring the Joker. He's in the, he's in the damn thing so much. But back I then, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think a month goes by where the joke is not on the cover of some, some book. Or he, or he might, he might stop in. You know, maybe, maybe you'll see him selling a hot dog. He'll make some kind of cameo. But back then. Sure. They really would try to space out, you know, make these guys more special. But obviously, Two Face yeah. was hugely popular, and he's uh, a they, prolific uh, villain. Yeah, they kept bringing him back until, until you know, this was February 1954, and something happened in the spring of 1954, right? As we've been talking about, so our man Two Face was not seen again for nine years, and uh, they could never really validate his, his mob-influenced origin because of the restrictions of the code. And they were trying to, as we were saying, they have been trying to soften the looks of, you know, ugly and deformed, uh, you know, creatures and people. So they really couldn't, they really couldn't do a whole lot with Two-Face. Yeah, I mean, because, here's uh, a guy whose power is basically that he's deformed. His whole, his whole <laughs> story is predicated on his deformity. Mm. Um, he winds up reappearing in a reprint of The New Crimes of Two-Face in Batman Annual Number 3, uh, June 1962. Except now, it's actor Paul Sloan disfigured by an exploding Klieg light rather than the acid. So uh, I, I guess the acid had too much malicious intent. I think so, yeah. I, I, so I, 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 I don't accident. know if I've read that story, but I bet that there was a you know crime element in there where they were... Oh, sure. Uh, that's how this, the acid got in there. But yeah, it was... Uh, they they totally they told they did actually redraw these panels. There was there yeah. was different panels. They redrew them so there was a Klieg light in them. 
Yeah, so it's more just happenstance than any kind of malicious intent. Um, but, but this actually makes more sense given the context of this character. It's actually, it's actually, yeah, I thought, not really a bad origin when you come to think of it. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that, that kind of thing, you're gonna, it's like, hey, that acid smells kind of acidic. Although, <laughs> Throw although, it on me. You know, and again, I, I really got to try to read this uh, comics. I want to know, so if he, or the reprint, really, I want to see, because yeah. he, he is playing Two-Face. So they're acknowledging <laughs> the existence of a Two-Face Mm-hmm. That what did have this mob land origin, just that this particular. So who who knows how we're talking about really massaging the code here, folks. Very much, very <laughs> much so. Uh, now he didn't make his actual return until a Denny O'Neill Neil Adams story, mm-hmm. uh, half an evil in Batman number two hundred thirty four, August nineteen seventy one. Nineteen seventy one was a big year too. <laughs> it was a lot of things changed, and you're able to, as we we talked about before, that's when you yep. were able to bring back werewolves and vampires, and I guess two sure. faces as well. <laughs> now for uh, for an awesome uh, four color section of before and after panels, uh, there's a you know Alter Ego magazine is an awesome research, yeah, uh, it's an awesome resource uh, for researching. <laughs> and uh, in issue number 105 from October uh, 2011, you can see some really really neat before and afters. Yeah, I mean I would I, I got a lot of my information uh, about changes the code made for, through this. Um, the rest was pretty much added through Chris's diligent research, but <laughs> Alter Ego is, is in general a good magazine to get. And this issue, Absolutely. in this issue, there's a great section that that really shows uh, the kinds of some often ridiculous changes, including a whole thing, a whole bunch of changes to Dick Tracy, where they would uh, take like they would leave the the line for bullets, but they would take away the gun. Nice. So it was always like, what is even happening? Like a bullet just went into this guy's body that was fired from nothing. I mean, it's it's really it's really worth getting. You can go on their website and get back issues. So I, I really recommend it, and uh, it's a it's a great resource. Sure. Um, now back to Dell Gold Key. They did not carry the CCA seal, but they did dedicate their inside front cover to a pledge for parents, and it read. The Dell trademark is and always has been a positive guarantee that the comics magazine bearing it contains only clean and wholesome entertainment. The Dell Dell code eliminates entirely rather than regulates objectionable material. That's why when your child buys a Dell comic, you can be sure it contains only good fun. Dell comics are good comics is our credo and constant goal. Uh, Gold Key Comics were also, they never displayed the CCA seal uh, it was the same company they split. I think hmm. in '62. Does that sound right to you? I think so. Um, but you know, uh, pretty much they they were the same, and they had the same I think ethics in general about publishing. Except ironically, Gold Key did use their coldless status to issue the first four color hom- car comics in a decade. Uh, that would have been Ghost Stories number one, uh, September November 1964 cover date, and this this really would lead to. Uh, the Warren publications like Creepy, Eerie, mm-hmm. uh, Vampirella, and just so many imitators. It really created a a revival in horror comics. Although those most of those comics would be black and white, and I think not even subject or not even in the running to get the CCA seal. They weren't even thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, eventually, Dark Horse would submit their books to the CCA, but they would not display the seal on their covers. Uh, Michael Martins of Dark Horse said, we're in, the, we're in the code simply to get our books into retail stores without distributors. We have nothing philosophically in common with them. Yep. Wow. Burn. <laughs> Psst, you know? Yeah, How about that? Uh, a few of the funny things here about the... Uh, I love Kobe this one. Po- this is one of my favorite. <laughs> the the Zuvembis. <laughs> 
Now, this is the uh, code skirt skirting uh, Marvel zombie. Uh, the, the words of Envy originally appeared in a story called Pigeons from Hell by Robert E. Howard in a Weird Tales pulp magazine way back in 1938. Marvel adopted this in lieu of use of the word zombie <laughs> until the uh, 1989 code revision. Of note, though, zombies did appear before uh, before the revision in uh, this particularly in, in an issue of Moon Knight, uh, issue 21 from uh, July of 1982. And they were called uh, yeah. zombies, or were they just looked like zombies? I believe they were referred to as zombies. Wow, interesting. I've actually, I've got, I've, I've got uh, that issue. I just had, I didn't look at it. Okay. Um, now, Byrne, John Byrne, our old friend here, he, he used Zuvembis in a, I, I don't know why, but he used Zuvembis in a 1997 issue of Wonder Woman. Yeah, why not? It's something he remembered. <laughs> sure, sure. And, 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 you know, we'll find out his feelings on the code next week. <laughs> um, Elvira, she took over House of Mystery for, uh, for the DC Comics in the uh, mid-'80s and uh, had one of her books uh, pushed off from the, from the code here. We uh, compare and contrast here. We have issue two of Elvira's House of Mystery uh, from 1986. This contained a bunch of decapitations. So a lot of headless bodies mm -hmm. got approved by the code. The next, the, I think it was a bi-monthly book. So the next issue, number three, contains a reference to masturbation. Doesn't get approved by the code. Yeah, well, that old American thing, you know, violence yeah. good, sex bad. Bad. <laughs> yeah, typical stuff. Uh uh, this is one of the more funny and famous ones, too. This was a, uh, you know, the comics had a ban on the uh, use of werewolves and wolfman. You couldn't even use the word wolfman. Uh, it's kind of a small point of contention because comics lettered in all caps, but there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Marv Wolfman you may have heard of <laughs> who worked for Marvel at the time and eventually would actually become the editor-in-chief. But before that, uh, he, he wrote a story in House of Secrets Number 83, January 1970. So I guess this was some DC work. Uh, yeah. In the beginning, Abel says, It's a story told to me by a wandering wolfman. And the credits were written by Marv Wolfman. Um, so they kind of worked around it. And, you know, this definitely was, was part of the chipping away at the code that would, you yeah. know, it would be revised the following year. Uh, and, and what was funny is this thing, it led to writers getting credit in Mystery Mags. Before <laughs> yeah. then, they, they wouldn't get any credit, but because this had happened, suddenly now it became a typical if thing. If he gets it, I want it. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone got credit. Uh, yeah, so, you know, they, they were just, they were trying to push the envelope, and it worked. You know, they, were, they found a workaround for uh, the Wolfman, and again, in the following year, you would get your Wolfman vi vampires and Frankensteins back. Sure. Uh, in uh, 1973, the Strange Tales, number 179. Excuse me. <clears throat> in 1973, uh, April 1973, covered eight strange tales, number 179, ran with a modified CCA stamp, which read, approved by the Cosmic Code Authority. This was a Starlin, uh, Jim Starlin, Milgram gag. Um, and nobody even noticed. Yep. <laughs> so I think, you know, the code was not really the fine-tooth comb. It, it made itself out to be people saw... A stamp with a letter on it, they figured that's good enough. Or maybe they weren't even looking by that point. This is sort of, you know, the times all, they were a change. All in, they did they was, uh, yeah, all they did was add an S because <laughs> the rest of it is exactly the same. Yeah, they would, so they never knew. <laughs> now, another story here we have uh, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. They create a 12 page Green Lantern Corps backup called Tigers, is uh, somewhere around 1984. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this explains why Abin Sur, who was Hal Jordan's predecessor, had been traveling in a spaceship that fateful day when he passed the ring over to Hal. Uh, he was tricked by the five inversions of the planet Yzmolt. Good enough. Now, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, they... Now, they basically look like a bunch of gross dissected organs and distended vaginas. <laughs> they truly do. Pinned by horribly tortured fashion to the planet. I mean, they're, they're now, gross this, as hell. Yeah, they're not very pleasant to look at. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, this was rejected by the CCA because the art was considered unsuitable for American audience. Uh, they didn't, uh, you know, the CCA didn't give any guidance or instruction to, pick, to fix. They just said the art was too much. Um, the story eventually did find publication in uh, Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual Number 2 in 1986, which was a book that did not carry the code. And uh, Tigers would go on to become a cornerstone of the uh, Blackest Night storyline, and Atrocitus of the Red Lanterns is one of those five inversions. Yeah, so this story that, you know, you couldn't even get on the newsstand back then is now part of the lore. Part of the, a serious part of the lore. I also wanted to take a minute to mention, you know, that when you submitted comics to the CCA, they would send them back with specific notes on what they wanted you to change, which is not true of other organizations that we're going to talk about, uh, yeah. like the MPAA. You just give them a film, they give you a rating, and you figure it out, you know, what, yep. what you might need to cut. So, you know, there, there was some, you know, the relationship between the CCA and publishers was not really always an antagonistic one. Or yeah, least, there was a little bit of a casualness to it. Yeah, here. I think these you know these people knew each other. They obviously moved in the same circles to some extent, and I think they realized that you know it's worthwhile to be professional and not be, mm-hmm. not treat these guys like you're challenging them all the time. Although mm-hmm. obviously, as and, we go into the '80s and '90s, there's more and more of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean the president is uh, Goldwater, who has had his own publication house in Archie. So exactly, you know, he knew that there's that you know there's a little give and a little take. A little bit, uh, but... <laughs> um, so, now we're bypassing the code. This comes from the uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund website. Uh, only four publishers remained active in the CMAA during the late 70s and 1980s. That would have been Archie, Marvel, Harvey, and DC. Harvey would shut down, I believe, by 82, or something like that, 84. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a major change in comic book distribution made it possible for publishers to sell comics without the seal of approval. That was the direct market, and like I say, that really will we really will get into that. That's going to be a long one. It's several parts, a lot to go into, but you know, obviously, the again, the bottom line: if you got a if you got a store dedicated to just comics, then you don't need to worry about necessarily you know uh, getting placement next to People magazine or not offending Grandma or whatever it is. You know, uh, you know, if you go into a store like that, you know what you're getting. Um, yeah. God, there's so much more we could say about it, but we'll stop it right there for now. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, under the old system, which was still in place, wholesalers deliver comics to retailers along with other magazines. These wholesalers served as the enforcement of the comics code authority uh, by only agreeing to handle the comics with the seal. And this is like what we said with Gaines and with his EC books, where when he wouldn't carry the seal in 1954, whole bundles were just returned unopened, like they weren't even looking at them. No seal, no no distribution. Uh, that changed with direct market. You were able to get into to a place where you could buy non-code comics, and there were plenty of them at the time. Sure. Uh, distributors and retailers willing to handle these comics without the seal of approval. They opened the door for publishers who wanted to bypass the CMAA and its censors. And freed from those code constraints, new publishers experimented with material, including adult-oriented comics, in order to expand the audience. And, you know, I think of Swamp Thing at this time. 
which mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. carrying the for mature audiences, right? Mature, Was that the thing? Yep. Um, the sophisticated suspense for that's mature right. audiences, suggested for mature audiences. And I, I you know, I, I wouldn't know or remember, but I wouldn't be surprised if Swamp Thing did not get newsstand distribution, but it did pretty brisk business in, uh, well, fairly brisk business, shops, relatively yeah. speaking, in the shops. Definitely was a well-respected title. So that was how they dealt with it, was they, you know, just kind of denoted that this was m- mature stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that's the, that's pretty much how the CMA, C, sorry the CCA ran uh, until its total expiration in 2011, which we're going to talk about next week. But you know, yep. we wanted to just mention other media that uh, self-regulates. When you get down to it, all forms of entertainment, at least in America, regulate themselves in, this, in some kind of self-censorship. Uh, in 1968, the uh, Motion Picture Association of America, which uh, still around. They began their rating system. The ratings have changed over the years, but the organization hasn't. Uh, these are the guys, like I said, you hand them a movie, they hand you a rating, and that's it. Yep. And you figure it out after that. Uh, in 1985, thanks to Tipper Gore and the PMRC, the Parent Music Resource Center, and their protesting against evil heavy metal, mm-hmm. parental advisory labels were placed on uh, albums and those. And it's it's funny you mentioned Tipper Gore there because uh, she's married to Al Gore, whose father Al Gore Senior was a close personal friend of Estes Kafava. Wow! Look at this; it all yeah. comes full circle. <laughs> maybe that maybe that was the conspiracy all along. It must get, be. They want to control everything. Get the rock and roll. Uh, but again, <laughs> but, but again, you know, we're saying they want to control. This is something the music industry does themselves. And to be honest, yes. I haven't seen a CD for sale in. Probably eight years, but I guess they still do it, right? <laughs> I would imagine. I wouldn't even know where to get them, frankly, at this point in my life. No. <laughs> uh, another one is the Entertainment Software Rating Board, the ESRB. That's 1994. They do theirs. Uh, you know, there's mature this is the video teams. Games, yeah. yeah, the video games. Uh, this is all from uh, Mortal Kombat and uh, Night Trap on Sega CD. That's, I remember. I remember the Night Trap controversy because it was kind of salacious. Yeah, um, this was Joe Lieberman and uh, Hillary Clinton. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's where it all comes from. Yeah. You know, it kind of res- resonates to things that are happening today, folks. Yep. Um, and of course, the TV parental guidelines in 1997. Those are the ratings you see on your TV uh, at the beginning of every show. Uh, to, it's used with the V chip technology, which I guess blocks certain shows. I don't know. I never had to use it, but. The, Me either. That sounds about right, don't you? That if they if they see a TV MA, the TV the TV goes blank. That's basically how it <laughs> works. Um, so you know, you see that this is something throughout all entertainment industries, through a lot of mm-hmm. industries in general. Rather than get the feds involved, uh, you know, they regulate themselves. And you know, it's a question. Maybe something we'll explore next week. But would the would, do you think the federal government might be less strict? Than these industries themselves, you know, because that the, might be part of the government's plan. It might, it <laughs> might be exactly part of their plan because you know the federal government. Well, they would be if they were to set something up, they would be looking at nonstop litigation. You yeah. know that they would, it would be endless, no matter what it was, no matter what industry it would be. It would be everything's opening a up, fight. Opening up, yeah, nonstop. But as long as you let the company, the industries do it themselves, well, any litigation is absorbed by those companies, and they're less likely to do it because they are all willingly uh, submitting to this process. And like you said, they may be stricter on themselves because they just want to avoid any more headaches. Exactly. Yeah. They, they yeah. may just they may just like, you know, we just we just want to sell the dang thing. We're not trying to make a <laughs> statement here, you know. So, no. uh, I mean, you know, it's funny because 
you know, a lot of these, a lot of these ratings now getting a getting a quote unquote bad rating. Well, that's good also, depending. You know what I mean? You hear about these movies that are really going for a PG thirteen or an R rating, or uh, you know, video games. Like if you don't get that MA rating, you might as well yeah. just go back yeah. home because kids. Yeah, you're fishing off the wrong pier. Yeah, they may want that. So uh, it's 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 pretty interesting. A, a lot to talk about. But next week. We are going to finally conclude our five-part look at the Comics Code yes. by talking about the period of time which we are still in right now in 2016 uh, after the Comics Code when they uh, officially shut down. But a lot of stuff happened even before that that we're going to get into as in our usual fashion. So if you want to write to us and tell us that we're going on too long or what we got <laughs> wrong or you have any other comments or suggestions, uh, please write to us through the uh Posting podcast Weird Science DC Comics at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, you definitely got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com, where he reviews a DC comic every day of the week, and it's always very funny and insightful. Has Thank ads you. at the end, and uh, you definitely got to give it a look, or you're really missing out. Uh, I think that's it for us this week. Uh, do you have anything else for the people, Chris? I think we're I think we're uh, we're getting there. <laughs> we're, we're almost <laughs> we're almost done, folks, and we got something a little lighter for you after this. So hopefully you bear with us and uh, you learn something. But until next week, I'm gonna tell you to keep it weird historically and peace. See you later. See ya. Follow us, dick swallow us. No power over themselves. Blindness. Don't take it as a diss. Take it as an act of kindness. We wanna be in front. Faking like they grind us. First off, you a buster, so mind us. On the street with your crack dick and you a